Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. Will you help me thank the band one more time as they let us in worship? Thank you, guys. Charles Bronson's younger brother here. I just want you to know, playing drums. So, with this amazing stash, that was awesome. So, well, good morning. I am glad to be here and uh, excited to dive into God's Word. And uh, how many of you, just by, by raise of hands, have children or are planning on having kids someday? Just by raise of hands, just... Okay, excellent. All right. Uh, how many of you have parents? Good? Yes? All right. All right. All of us. Excellent. Wow, that's good. There is something to naming children. If you've had the pleasure of doing that, I know some of you have multiple kids and you've had to like create names and just think of, you know, random names because you have so many kids. You're just like, I don't know. We'll call you, I don't know, Junior. I don't know. We'll just call you something. But, uh, but there's just something to naming. I mean, there are books and books about naming children and what names mean and and what names are in, and Jacob and Bella are the two popular names right now for, for boys and girls with Twilight and things like this, and, and uh, it's just, you know, well, do you choose the most popular name, or do you choose one that's not so popular? I mean, are you looking for, like, the least likely, you know, Nebuchadnezzar? Who's going to name their kid Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, you just, just call him Chad, you know, it's like, it's right in the name, so, um, come on, that's good, you got it, that's good, that's good. Uh, you know, just, what, what do you name your kids? And, uh, and you, you usually get nine, nine, you know, 40 weeks, so a little over nine months to, to plan it out. For my wife and I, our kids were pre- both premature, so we had to come up with a couple names quick and, uh, and just think through them. And, and you never share names, by the way. If, you've, if you're planning on having kids, you, haven't, you don't share the name with anyone. You just don't do that. That's just not something, you, because, because all of a sudden you share, oh, we're going to name him Timmy. And you're like, oh, I knew a Timmy once. Ooh, Satan incarnate. No, no, that's a bad horse. And you're like, oh, my name. That was my father's name. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, you just, you just don't do that. You just don't, don't tell people because it, it, all of a sudden it just comes out. And being a youth pastor is even worse because I know a lot of names because I've had a lot of kids in my youth ministry and it's like, oh, I can't name them that. Oh, no, no, no. That, that's not going to work. And, and then in, in our culture, we get to name two names, first name and a middle name. And... And sometimes they don't even go by those two names. They go by something else, you know, and uh, you, you just have a nickname for them, and they go by that throughout their whole life. And uh, it's just amazing, the, the names. And so uh, I was thinking about names, and, and, uh, and it brought me to a passage of Scripture. And if you were here on Sunday night for Christmas Cafe, I gave the, the Cliff Notes version of this message this morning, and, and uh, we're going to dive deep into uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. So if you want to grab your Bible, we're going to be looking at what God named his son Jesus. 700 years before Jesus was born, 2,700 plus years ago, God, through the prophet Isaiah, gave us the name of his son. And it's pretty unique. And Mary and Joseph, you also know, the angel gave them the name Jesus. You will name him Jesus. And I'm going, why doesn't God do that anymore? You know, why didn't he? This is what your son is going to be called. Or this is what your daughter's going to be. I mean, it would just be awesome. Angels just get sent, messengers. You know, you get told exactly what to name him. But it becomes this nerve-wracking. You know, for me, I grew up Jonathan Rockford Nungester. Whew. Talk about... You know, some serious letters. I mean, when I was taking the SATs, it took me a long time to get through all those bubbles, right? And you run out of spaces. So my name became Jonath Rock Nungester. And it's like, well, they left names for the last name, but what in the world? My, my first name's just been totally cut off. And so now I go by John because it just is simple and, and, uh, and no H, just J O N. And uh, it's just, it's very simple. But in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we see four names that God gave his son through the prophet Isaiah. And it says this, and it's a verse you hear often during Christmas time. And it's this verse, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will rest upon his shoulders, and he will be called. And read it with me. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This morning, I want to look at those four names and look at the characteristics of God and why would God give his son these names and how can we experience them this Christmas? 
The first one that's given um, is the word wonderful counselor. Now, in the wonderful counselor, it's given two Hebrew words, and it's, it's really important that we understand the meaning because oftentimes names can really just become detrimental to your upbringing. You know, it, it can become a, you know, Jonathan Rockford, Nuttengesser, whew, that's just a big mouth, you know, and you always have fun with kids. You're like, guess my middle name, and no one can ever, Rockford, who's going to guess Rockford? I mean, it just, it just doesn't happen. But oftentimes, parents don't think too much about how their first name of their child and their last name match up. For example, you can Google these and find them, but the Mann family, M-A-N-N, decided to name their child Anita. So for the rest of her life, she's known as Anita Mann. I mean, you, some of you, are, you're, you'll get it later. Okay. Uh, but you also have the, parent, the, the Wright family, you know, Wilbur, and, but they named their daughter Eileen. She didn't drink her V8. I don't know. But her whole life, she's known. I mean, Eileen, great name. Right? Eileen Wright. So now, I, you just, it's just, you got to be careful. And then ladies, we've got to be careful who you marry. I mean, first question you should ask is, what's your last name? And figure out if it goes with your first name, because, you know, your name changes. So, <laughs> I know uh, a guy by the name of, uh, what was it? Let me see. Oh, yeah. Jack Price married a woman named Lois. So now she's known as Lois Price. <laughs> How much did you pay for her? Well, I got the lowest price on her. Uh, you know, or, or the guy named Steve Back, B-A-C-K, married a woman named Helen. And after 10 years being married to her, she understood what it was like to go to Helen Back. Yeah, Helen Back, yeah, yeah. You got to be careful with these names. You got to be really careful. You know, so ladies, just really, you know, I'm going to keep my maiden name, you know, just, or we'll hyphenate it, something. We'll figure that out. But it's really important. And he gives the first name to Jesus as wonderful counselor. And it's two Hebrew words. And we're going to be looking at a lot of Hebrew and a lot of Greek today. And I just want to, you know, give you a, a heads up because you have a blank notes page in your, in, your, uh, in your outline, in your bulletin this morning. Uh, it's blank because you're going to be taking copious notes, of course, as you always do. Um, but I wanted to give you plenty of space because we're going to be looking at a lot of different verses. I'm just going to be reading them, boom, 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 going through them. You may get paper cuts going to them, but I just want you to, to make sure you write them down. You, you may need to just write them down and read them later because we're going to be flying through these four names. But Wonderful Counselor comes from the two Hebrew words, Pele, which means an amazing soccer player. No, I... Pele, which means indescribable, wonderful, amazing, magnificent, and yachts. Pele, yachts, meaning guide, trainer, counselor. We get these two names, Pele, yachts, wonderful counselor. And it, it's one of these things that, that you really need to, to understand when it comes to knowing God, that he's a wonderful counselor. Over here, I've got a little illustration. We've got this lovely sofa. Most, if you go to counselors today, if you go to financial counselors, if you go to marriage counselors, if you go to bankruptcy counselors, any counselor always seems to have some sort of comfy chair or seat to sit in. And I stole this from my therapist's office. I didn't steal it. I'm just joking. It's from the youth room. But it looks like one of these chairs that a psychiatrist or a psychologist would use. And when I think about wonderful counselor, I think it's really important who this counselor is, what you know about them. For example, it wouldn't make sense for a wonderful counselor that's counseling me and my wife in marriage to have been divorced three times. Right? It just would you just it'd be really hard to go to someone who's been divorced three times and listen to their counsel. You'd probably go, okay, tell me what you have to say. I'm going to do the exact opposite. And you need to know someone that knows what they're talking about. And it will also be very difficult for my wife and I to go to marriage counseling with someone who's never been married before, a single person. They may know all the things, but they have never experienced what it's like to be in marriage. Does that make sense? And so we want to understand, and that's the amazing thing that we have in Christ, is that our wonderful counselor knows exactly what we've been through. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, it says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What do you need this Christmas? Where are you needing something? You see, it doesn't make a lot of sense for me to go to a doctor if there isn't a problem or something going on. Oftentimes, we wait too long to go to a marriage counselor until there's something that's really bad rather than going at regular intervals and getting checked up, getting a little outside feedback. We go and... Things are already horrible. Things are good. There's a big crisis. There's a big argument. Something going on. We need to go see someone. You know, I think about it like we take our cars in, not just when it's broken, but we take it in every 3,000 miles or whenever we're supposed to, when that light comes on saying check engine oil. It's a little too late, but you should do it more often. But we go in regularly to get tune-ups for our cars, but we're not willing to go in to see a counselor on a regular basis for our marriage. We treat our cars with more love and care than her own marriages and getting counseling and getting something going. But when it comes to our wonderful counselor, when it comes to that, do we go to him regularly? Do we go to him only when we're in a crisis? Or are we getting those checkups? You see... Two weeks ago, I was sick. I had the flu. I had the, the lovely flu that's been going around. It's the worst flu I've ever had in my life. And it was not, not good. And I thought about it at 2 o'clock in the morning, whether I should go to the ER or not. Why did I think about it then? Because I was in deep weeds. I was not feeling well at all. Jesus talks about this, and Jesus was one of those guys in Luke chapter 5, that hung out with the wrong crowd. The crowd that he shouldn't be hanging out with. Jesus liked to party. He enjoyed parties. He would go to them. His first miracle, first miracle was, anyone? Turning water into wine. So the party could continue. The party would be over, and so he continued the party. How cool was that? He wanted to hang out, have a party. And so in Luke chapter 5, we see him going with one of his new disciples, Matthew, who he just called to follow him. Matthew was a tax collector. Ooh, bad. And Matthew hung around with other tax collectors. These were the, the gangbangers of the day, if you will. They were the guys that would go around and collect money for the Romans, the bad guys. And they could charge whatever they wanted above and beyond what the Romans wanted so they could keep for themselves. And so they'd just go and, hey, you owe me a hundred bucks. Let's see you on the street. Hey, you just walked down my street? Another hundred. Give me money. And if you didn't give them money, they'd send Guido, or whatever the Roman centurion's name was, out to rough you up to get the money out of you so that they could take it. And he's hanging out with these guys. Jesus is at a party that Matthew's throwing for him. These were guys that didn't say the right words. They probably cussed. They probably didn't dress well. They probably didn't go through the proper tradition of how you eat food and wash hands and do the proper things like all the other good Jewish people did of the day. And some other rabbis came up and are seeing this and seeing Jesus partying with these guys. And they asked his disciples, why, are you, why is your rabbi, your teacher, hanging out with them? Hanging out with those guys. And Jesus, knowing what they're thinking, turns to them and replies, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Where are you sick? Where do you need the wonderful counselor to come in to your life? To give you counsel, give you the words of encouragement. There's three things I want to give you this morning about the wonderful counselor, and we'll move on to the other characteristics and names of God. The first one is this, is that 
With your counselor, the wonderful counselor, we need to be brutally honest. We need to be completely open and honest with our counselor. It doesn't make sense for my wife and I to go to a marriage counselor and to sit there and lie about what's going on. Oh, everything's fine. Everything's great. We have no problems, no issues. So tell us what we should do because nothing's wrong. The counselor would look at us and go, Wait, what, what are you coming to me? What is going on? We need to be brutally honest and open. Jesus has a counseling experience in John chapter 4. Jesus goes through the area of Samaria. And he stops by at a therapist's office by the well. And there was probably a couch there, probably not, I don't know. Jesus is hanging out there and a woman comes out. The Samarian woman comes out. She comes out in the middle of the day to avoid the deep glances of her neighbors and avoid the comments and stares as she gets water. And she has a conversation with the wonderful counselor. And Jesus calls her out on her sin. He says, where is your husband? Go get him and bring him here. She comes forth and says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus looks in and says, you're right. You've been divorced five times. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. She was living in sin. And he calls her out. And what does she say? She goes back to the people, to the town, after her therapy session with the wonderful counselor. She says, come, come hear this guy. This guy has told me everything I've ever done. She had to get open and honest. She had to be real. Everything came out with the wonderful counselor. Everything came out. She tried to play it off and play it safe. But with our wonderful counselor, we need to be brutally honest. The second thing that we need to do is that we need to listen to him. Listen to our counselor. Once again, if my wife and I or any of you go to a counselor and you sit there and you share all these things and you do, uh, you know, pouring out this heart and you're brutally honest and you give it all and it's all out, and then the counselor is about to give you some feedback and some insights, and you're like, nope, thanks, we're good. And you walk out. Without hearing what they have to say, it makes no sense. So we need to listen to our wonderful counselor. There's this amazing scene in Mark chapter 9 where Jesus calls a couple of his close disciples, Peter, James, and John, and says, hey, we're going on a little hike, a little backpacking trip. Come on, let's go. And they hike up this hill. And all of a sudden, they get to the top, and Jesus, his clothes completely change to brilliant white. And all of a sudden, with them is Moses and Elijah. And I don't know how they knew it was Moses and Elijah, but it's recorded in Scripture as Moses and Elijah, but it's an incredible experience. And Peter gets excited. And Peter starts, I think, just getting giddy and get, oh my gosh, it's amazing. Hey, Jesus, let's do this. This is awesome. Your clothes changed. Moses and Elijah are here. Let's build an altar and we'll sacrifice together and we'll sit around the campfire and we'll all hold hands and sing Kumbaya. It's going to be awesome and amazing and wonderful. And you know what? Better yet, I'll build tents for each one of you. You all have tents. We'll have a sleepover. You know, I can just see him getting that excited. And at that moment, a voice from heaven calls out and says, this is my son whom I love. What does it say? Listen to him. The wonderful counselor is there, showing himself in all his brilliance and all his glory. Peter gets excited and wants to have a sleepover. And a voice from heaven, listen to him. Just a few short months later, Peter is the one that will deny Christ three times. It's amazing for me to think about the idea of, you know, me being on a, you know, mountain biking trip with some guys and we'll go up, you know, Chesborough and all of a sudden one of the guys, boom, changing into a tuxedo on the fly, a white tuxedo, brilliant white. And all of a sudden Moses and Elijah are cruising along on bikes too. And a voice from heaven in Chesborough Canyon opens up and says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. You think your life would be changed by that? I mean, you're looking for the hidden cameras and what's going on? How did this happen? But we need to listen to our wonderful counselor. 
The third thing that we need to do with our wonderful counselor is we need to do what he says. It's not enough just to listen to our counselor, but we need to do what he says. Jesus describes this just a chapter later, and you see this in the wonderful counselor, when Jesus is approached by a rich man who comes to Jesus and says, what does it take Jesus to get into heaven? What can I do to get into heaven with God? And Jesus says, well, you need to obey this command and this command and this command. And the rich man looks at him and gets excited and goes, yeah, I have done those since I was a little kid. I have kept every one of those. I'm good to go, Jesus. And then there's a short phrase that I don't know if you catch in Mark chapter 10, verses 20 and 21. Jesus looks at him, and it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. The wonderful counselor didn't sit there and fold his arms and look at him with contempt and go, you are all messed up. You don't get it. You don't have a clue. But he looks at him and loves him and then says, there's one thing you're missing. Go sell all of your possessions and give your money to the poor and then come follow me. This man had a choice. This man was given the choice. And in that following verses, it says, the man became very sad and walked away because he couldn't do what the wonderful counselor asked of him. So we have the wonderful counselor. The second one is this, is that we have a mighty God. We have a mighty God. There's three things that we believe about God theologically, and these are big, big terms, but you all know them, is that we believe that God is omnipresent, that he is everywhere all the time. He is everywhere all the time. God is omniscient, meaning he knows everything even the thoughts you're having right now about lunch and what you're going to have afterwards or the, the business meetings that you're going to have this week that you're thinking about right now. He knows everything. He knows how many hairs are upon your head or not on your head. He knows everything that's going on in your life. He knows what's going on in your bank account. He knows whether your checkbook's balanced or not. He knows what's going on in those business dealings. He knows what's going on in those relationships and the struggle there. He knows everything. And the third thing that we know and believe about God is that he is omnipotent. He is omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful. I love this idea about God because mighty God comes from the Hebrew words El Gabor. El Gabor meaning God, El, the mighty, the brave, the courageous, the powerful one. This is incredible. This power. And, and I brought another little illustration for you. Right back here. To describe this power, it looks like dynamite. It's not. It's just for road flares. But imagine if it was dynamite. I couldn't find dynamite on the fly. It's kind of hard to buy these days. But we got dynamite. Road flares. There's power in dynamite. And in the Greek, the word power is the word dunamis, where we get dynamite, dunamis, power. And it, it, what's incredible about this power is that God's power is at work in you. God's work is at power in you. And in Philippians chapter 2, it says this, For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power, the dunamis, to do what pleases Him. Oftentimes we, we sit as Christians and we go, oh, we know what we need to do, we know what we need to do, we know what we need to do, but God, I just can't do it anymore. I just don't want to do it. I just, I, I give up. And what's amazing about this passage is that He not only gives you the desire, tells you what you need to be doing, but He gives you the power to do it. The dunamis, the dynamite. The explosive energy is working 
in you. And I love this idea, and I think about this, and it's a very simplistic way of looking at it, but I think about this mighty God as a little miner in my life. Two weeks ago was the memorial of the worst tragedy in mining history, if you read Yahoo News or anything like that. 27 miners died in West Virginia a year ago in a mining accident. And you think about that power of dynamite and explosives and what they're doing, and you think about that power is in you. Mining away, getting the junk out in certain areas of your life, in other tunnels of your life, in other areas of your life, He's finding the diamond in the rough and seeking that out and refining it and getting it out of the muck. In the same way, our mighty God sometimes goes through in our lives and he feels like he's going a mile a minute and he's just plowing through and you're like, yes, I am on track. God, you're awesome. This is amazing and wonderful and I feel your power and I understand. And other times it feels like he hasn't got through an inch. He just keeps plugging away. His work is at in you. And he's at work for you, whether you like it or not. He's at work for you. And Isaiah chapter 40 describes this power and this work. He gives strength to the weary. Isaiah 40, verses 29 through 31. It says, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. How many of you are weak or weary this Christmas? How many of you are wishing or you're glad that 2011 is over? And almost, I mean, it's getting close. How many of you, 2011, you'd say, yep, it's been a year? Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I've already started looking at 2012, and I'm already over 2012. I started looking at my schedule, and I'm going, where in the world, what? How did I get so busy? Man, I'm not even there yet, and I'm just like, oh. The Mayan calendar, December 21st, 2012, I'm going, God, maybe it'd be a good thing that you do come back then. It'd just be awesome because I'm just, whew, there's a lot going on. But he's at work for us, and he gives power to the weak and the weary. He continues on and says, even youths grow tired and weary. And that term for youth in the Hebrew describes the Olympic athletes of the day, the strongest ones, the ones that have the energy, that are going for it. Even youths grow tired and weary. And young men stumble and fall. I understand this. A few weeks ago, my wife, who's a couponer, found a Groupon for some classes, some workout classes with CrossFit training. And so I decided to take my first class yesterday. And we, we took, you know, we have a newbie class. So you're learning all the lifts and learning different things. And it's really simple and, and basic. And then all of a sudden, the last 15 minutes of the class are, all right, let's do a 15-minute workout. For me, it was 10 minutes. I couldn't do the last five minutes. I'm going... I feel like I've never worked out in my life. What are you doing to me? And this morning, you're lucky that I'm here because my body is feeling that workout from yesterday. Even young men will stumble and fall. I know that. I wanted to die yesterday. It was bad. It was 10 minutes of just constant work. I'm going, this is not looking pretty. But it says this, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. God is at work for you, for those who hope in the Lord. Are you hoping in our mighty God? Do you have that belief this Christmas? Do you need that this Christmas? The final point is that Jesus' power, his, his, this mighty God is at work through you. Acts 1.8 says this, but you will receive dunamis, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, even in Agora Hills and the Caneo Valley, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This mighty God, this dunamis, this power, this incredible, huge, wonderful counselor, mighty God is at work through you, through me. He lives inside of us. His spirit dwells inside of us. And that's got to do something to your heart. And he is working through you and gives you power. He gives you that dynamite. Why? To be his witnesses wherever you go.
He's our wonderful counselor. He's our mighty God. And the third one is everlasting father. This everlasting father is a, is a difficult one for some. It becomes something that can cause some people to, to view things differently. And oftentimes when you come to this characteristic and this name of God, you cringe a little bit. How many of you have ever had a father? Yeah, I think all of you, in one way or another. And no matter where your father is and your relationship with him, your view of the everlasting father is tinted as you look through the lens of your earthly father. No matter where you're at, if you're wearing reading glasses right now or, or whatever optical things you're wearing, I don't have to wear them. Just grab them and raise them up and just look, look just hold them up real quick. Anywhere around it? Yes, some of you. Excellent. Show them off. Some of you, I like those. Those are very nice. Um, some of you right now with them off, I look like Roland Neednoggle. Others of you, if I was to ask you to read scripture right now without your glasses, you'd be a heretic because you couldn't be able to read it, right? There's a need for the glasses to see certain things. Depth, perception. There's a need for glasses so that you see clearly. And our fathers, our earthly fathers, become that lens that we view God through. And for many of us, we grew up with fathers that were never satisfied. And that becomes a lens of how we view God. We have a dad that never told us that he loves us, that he's proud of us, that he cares about us. He was never satisfied. I think about the college-age girl that I had a few years ago that grew up with a dad who never told her that he loves her. He was a good dad. But he never told her that he was proud of her or that he loved her. And going through college, she had the mindset that she was going to go through college, double major, get 4.0, graduate with honors, so that when she graduated, not to look at the walking across the auditorium and getting her diploma, that's not what she was looking forward to, even though that was going to happen. But she was looking forward to walking across the auditorium afterwards and finding her dad and meeting her dad and her dad coming up to her and looking at her in the eyes, face to face, embracing her and telling her, I'm proud of you. And graduation day came. She graduated with a double major. She graduated with honors. And she walked across the stage and received her diploma for her double major. And she walked down into the auditorium. And at the end, she looked for her family and she saw her family across the auditorium. And just like her dream, she sees her dad leading the way and approaching her and coming across the auditorium, meets her and says to her, Honey, it's getting late. It's time that your mom and I head back home. She was crushed. She had been working so hard and for so long for that one moment that he would embrace her and say, I'm proud of you. For some of you, you grew up with a dad just like that and that's how you view God as someone that you have to work for and you're not doing good enough and you're not doing the right things. You're not doing enough things in order to please him. For others of you, you grew up with a dad that was always angry. You grew up with a dad that you had to walk around on eggshells whenever he was around because he could blow up at any moment. He could blow up on you. He could blow up on your family. My guess is by the time you were a teenager, you found ways to get out of the house so that you didn't have to be around that angry dad. And maybe you view God through that lens and you see God as a God that sits in heaven with a quiver of lightning bolts and is just waiting to throw them and launch them at you when you mess up. Waiting to just rip into you and treat you the way you deserve because ooh, you've messed up. For some of you in here, you've dealt with abuse. Physical, spiritual, sexual, emotional, 
from your dad. And it's a wonder that you're here this morning with that lens of God. You've had to overcome a lot in order to see him differently. Or maybe you're dealing with the lens and seeing the lens of a dad, a father who was never there. A dad that worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and was never at home and never came to any of your games or recitals. Never saw you. Maybe it was through divorce. Maybe it was just through work. And you never had a relationship with your father. And you view God the everlasting Father, through that lens of he's so far off and doesn't care about me. I don't even know if he wants me. But our everlasting Father, and I want to describe him to you, our everlasting Father is a Father who is compassionate. Psalm 103.8 might be your Verse to claim this morning. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He's literally overflowing in love. This is who our everlasting Father is. He's compassionate. Our everlasting Father is caring. He cares about us. Jeremiah 29.11 says, for the, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. He cares about you. He desires what's best for you. And he wants you to prosper and succeed. Our everlasting Father is always there. Hebrews 3 says that, for I will never forget you or forsake you. I will never leave you. I will never be away from you. I am always with you. I'm always there for you. That's our everlasting Father. So we have our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father. And the final one is Prince of Peace. Prince comes from the word Sar, S-A-R, meaning the one in charge, Lord, Chief, General, Captain. Peace comes from the Hebrew word Shalom. It was a greeting that was given whenever you would take someone into your home, whenever you would see someone. And it describes the idea of rest, tranquility, wholeness, and completeness. The Sar Shalom. Later on, you hear words like Zar, C-Z-A-R, we have today. Zar of whatever our government is doing these days. Zar of automotive. Zar of technology. I don't know. There's so many now. I don't But they're the chief. They're the ones in charge. You also hear later on, Romans took the word Tsar and added Caesar, Caesar, the one in charge. The one that's the general, the chief, the emperor. Our God got the name of Prince of Peace, the one in charge of rest, tranquility, the general of wholeness and completeness. Do you need that this Christmas? Do you need the Sar Shalom? The Lord of Tranquility? The Sar Shalom is the peace who comforts you. John 14 says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus doesn't give the way the world gives. He gives his peace. His peace. 
Philippians 4, 6 says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, the shalom of God, which transcends all understanding, it's beyond anything we could ever understand, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That shalom, that rest, that tranquility is available to you through the Sar Shalom. The Sar Shalom gives the peace that also saves us. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have shalom with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the peace that brings that relationship, that brings that wholeness in our relationship with God. It brings it back together. And Jesus is known as the Prince of Peace, the one that's in charge of that restoration, that wholeness. We get to experience him this Christmas. I think about Sar Shalom and I think about this umbrella. I think about that shalom and that peace, that wholeness, that rest, as being underneath the Sar Shalom, as being in the shadow of his wings, we get to rest in that peace. But does that mean that we can do whatever we want and then just turn to him and we'll receive that peace? Does it mean that we will stay under his Sar Shalom, his Prince of Peace, forever? This might be a sermon in and of itself, but I want to give you some points because I don't think that's true. Because I think often in our world, we get to a place where it's, you go too far in your relationship and you've contracted a disease, well, just pray about it. Just pray about it and go back to God. He'll take care of everything. Or you go and you, break, you, know, you have a fight with your wife or your husband or your kids this morning just trying to get them to church. And it's like, let's just go to church and we'll, everything will be better. Or you run up your bills and you, you max out your credit cards and it's like, just go read your Bible and everything will come back together. Sometimes the Sar Shalom, the peace that we're under, he actually moves away from us. Not that we move away from him, but that he moves away from us. And it's something that we need to understand because it's not that he leaves us or forsakes us, he's always there, but he will remove the Sar Shalom for our benefit. And I want you to catch this, and this is a really big point, but I want you to get this because Sar Shalom gives peace and removes it all for his purpose. It's all for our benefit. His removal of peace can disturb us and disturb our spirits when we've done something wrong and we need to turn back to him. It can be that alarm that goes off when it's removed from us that causes us to turn back to him. His removal of the Sar Shalom can disrupt me and your spirit when you become too comfortable. In America, we don't like to be uncomfortable. We like that we have TVs now with remote controls and we don't have to get up and go back to the TV. And we like our lazy boys because they can recline and we can lay back and we can put our feet up. We like to be comfortable. But oftentimes, the Sar Shalom will be removed so that we will get uncomfortable and will want more. Be drawn into a deeper relationship with him and understand it more. The Sar Shalom can be removed to draw me to him when I'm away and I'm gone away from him. Cause me to turn back to him and make that you turn and go back to him. And this morning, some of you might be here this morning and you feel like you have been outside the Sar Shalom. You've been outside from underneath the Sar Shalom for one reason or another. And this Christmas might be the Christmas where 
you turn back to the Sar Shalom and desire the one that's in charge of wholeness and completeness and rest and seek him with all that you are. This morning we've looked at the Pele Yats, the wonderful counselor, El Gabor, the mighty God, Ad Ab, the one who lives in eternity and is our Father, and the Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. My question for you this morning is what do you need this Christmas? What are you looking for? This Christmas, I hope that you experience Jesus in amazing ways. I hope that you see him as a wonderful counselor. I hope that you experience his power this Christmas. I hope, hope you see him differently through a different lens and see him for who he really is as your everlasting father that loves you and cares about you and has his arms opened up to you, wanting to pick you up and bring you into his lap and say to you, I'm proud of you. I love you. Or you see him as the star shalom, the prince of peace, and you rest under his wings this Christmas and receive the wholeness and completeness that you've been looking for. Let me pray. God, thank you that you are the Pele Yachts, the wonderful counselor, the one that we can rely on and go to the one that we can experience your forgiveness, your love, your counsel, your wisdom. God, thank you that you are a mighty God, that you are powerful, and that that power lives in us as Christians. God, thank you that you are our Father, our everlasting Father. May you bring wholeness and clarity to our view on you. And God, thank you for being our Sar Shalom, the one that is in charge of rest and tranquility. May we pursue you and go after you with all of our heart this Christmas and see you for who you are and what you've been named find fulfillment in that. God, right now as we give back to you through our offerings, as we give to you what already belongs to you because you are omnipotent and all-powerful. You're omniscient and know exactly what our bank account stands and what bills we have, what bills need to be paid. God, may we give this morning out of joy and thankfulness for how you have provided for us. And give back out of the love of our hearts. Not out of shame or guilt or compulsion. But God, help us to experience you and worship you through the giving of our tithes and offerings. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. The Christmas story from Luke chapter two. I know it's early, but I'm just gonna read a portion of it and that you might experience God in a new and fresh way this Christmas. The shepherds, were there standing in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. But an angel reassured them and said, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God 
and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace. Shalom on earth to those with whom God is pleased. May the Lord bless you and keep you this Christmas. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift his countenance upon you and give you peace this week as we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As you leave, say Merry Christmas to three people that you might not know so well. And have a great week as you expect his birth in your life. Merry Christmas.